Watch and listen to the talking news every day at 12 noon and 6 p.m. on Channel 96 Comcast Xfinity and Channel 30 Verizon Fios. It can also be heard Mondays and Tuesdays at 4.30 p.m. and Wednesdays at 12.30 p.m. on Channel 9 Xfinity and Channel 29 Fios. Listen anytime on the BMC Podcast Network on SoundCloud and iTunes. Just search for the Belmont Media Podcast Network. And now on to the talking news. Sancta Maria, once known as the Red Sox Hospital, by Diane McLaughlin. When Sancta Maria Nursing Facility closes in December, it will leave behind a 70-year legacy of treating patients in Cambridge. For some of those patients, a visit to the Sancta Maria often meant front-page news because they were Red Sox players. Shortly after its founding in 1948, Sancta Maria Hospital earned the nickname the Red Sox Hospital because of the number of players who received care there. Initially located on Memorial Drive in Cambridge, a little more than a mile across the river from Fenway Park, the hospital provided a convenient place for treating players' injuries and ailments. The nuns on staff, members of the Daughters of Mary of the Immaculate Conception, would receive a call from a team doctor or trainer asking, is our room empty? According to a 1949 Boston Globe article, the nuns would start preparing the Red Sox room, described as a pleasant blue room with large open fireplace and cheery floral hangings. The staff seemed to enjoy caring for the players. The nuns have met so many Red Sox players and their wives, either as patients or visitors, that they have developed a keen interest in the pennant race, reporter Mary Murray O'Brien wrote in the 1949 Globe article. They like night games because they have, uh, because they have time to watch on their television. A frequent Sancta Maria patient was Ted Williams, during his legendary Red Sox career, he spent time at the hospital recuperating from a broken elbow, a fractured collarbone, and other ailments. Williams occasionally spoke to the press from his hospital room, and photographers would often capture him exiting the building with one of the nuns by his side. The Red Sox were not the only baseball players receiving care there. Early in his career, future Hall of Fame famer Jim Catfish Hunter was scheduled to pitch at Fenway Park for the Kansas City Athletics in July of 1966. He complained of pain in his side. The Globe reported, and he was sent to the Sancta Maria Hospital for an emergency appendectomy. After the, after the hospital re relocated to its current building near Fresh Pond in 1968, more than seven miles from Fenway Park, some players still went there for treatment. One of them, Carl Yastrzemski, was a patient at Sancta Maria after injuring his knee in 1972, according to the Globe. Given the franchise's long history, Sancta Maria inevitably played a role in some notorious Red Sox moments as well. In Ted Williams, the biography of American hero Lee Monfield writes that in September of 1958, Williams was angry at himself for striking out. 
He swung his bat, intending to release it toward the dugout. Instead, the bat flew into the stands, hitting 60-year-old Gladys Heffernan in the head. Heffernan, the housekeeper for Red Sox general manager Joe Cronin, was taken to Santa Maria Hospital. The Globe reported where she told the press, Ted's wonderful, and I feel sorry for him. On August 18, 1967, 22-year-old Red Sox star Tony Canigliaro was transported to Santa Maria Hospital after being hit in the face by a pitch. The famous United Press International photograph of Canigliaro's swollen black eye was taken inside the hospital. In June of 1955, Red Sox first baseman Aristotle George Harry Aganis spent several weeks at Santa Maria during a period of poor health. The former Boston University football star, who today is memorialized on campus with a statue and namesake arena, suffered a fatal pulmonary embolism at Santa Maria on the 27th of June. He died at the age of 26. And now over to my colleague, Claire. Thank you, Bob. A place like this shouldn't disappear. Tragic upcoming closure of Santa Maria Nursing Facility points to concerning national trend by Diane McLaughlin. Cambridge's Santa Maria Nursing Facility celebrated two significant milestones with a cookout in early August. Two weeks later, it announced plans to close in December. Citing financial challenges, the nonprofit facility, which cares for both short and long term patients, announced on August 17 it will cease operations on December 31st. The closing will end Sancta Maria's 70 year presence in Cambridge and also points to challenges faced by nursing homes throughout the country. Sancta Maria Nursing Facility Administrator Nicholas Gilbert told the Cambridge Chronicle that after joining the staff 14 months ago, he thought the facility would overcome financial challenges experienced in recent years. But this past spring, he said, the board of directors began to realize the facility would not survive another year. People are sad. I personally am sad, Gilbert said. It's a disappointment when a facility as good as this closes down. According to Medicare's website, Nursing Compa Comparison, Governor said that Mount Sancta Maria had an above-average rating for staffing, while registered nursing staff was much above average, the highest rating. The facility received an overall rating of average, with health inspections at its lowest rating. 70 years in Cambridge... Owned and operated by the Catholic Religious Order, Daughters of Mary of the Immaculate Conception, Sancta Maria first opened in 1948 as a nonprofit hospital at 350 Memorial Drive, site of the former Charles Gate Hospital, a short drive from Fenway Park. Many Red Sox players were treated there, earning Sancta Maria the nickname the Red Sox Hospital. The hospital moved in 1968 to a larger facility, the current location at 799 Concord Ave near Fresh Pond in 1989. 
the hospital converted to a nursing facility caring for long-term residents, including dementia patients, and providing short-term rehabilitation services. The facility also ho offers hospice and palliative care. Some of the long-term patients have physical ailments but remain cognizant and engaged members of the community, Gilbert said. This year marked Sancta Maria's 70th anniversary, as well as the 50th anniversary of the Concord Ave building. During its time as a hospital, as many as 30 religious women served as nurses, Gilbert said. Today, Sister Mary Teresa Tenania and Sister Mary Lucille Banach have ministerial roles on the facility's staff. Gilbert said Sancta Maria's Board of Directors has begun exploring opportunities to sell the building, including to other health care providers. Multiple challenges. One reason for Sancta Maria's financial difficulty was their patient mix. Gilbert said the facility cared for more long-term patients, those covered by Medicaid or MassHealth, than short-term patients covered by Medicare. In today's healthcare system, facilities receive lower reimbursements for Medicaid compared to Medicare. Gilbert said Sancta Maria, which has 134 beds, adjusted the patient mix during the past year to an equal number of long and short-term patients, but the adjustment was not enough to overcome the financial difficulties. Rising maintenance costs for the 50-year-old building also contributed to the financial burden, as well as a nursing shortage, Gilbert said, providing a relatively high number of nursing hours for patients each day. The nonprofit facility had difficulty competing for quality nurses who can find higher salaries at hospitals. Now here's Max. Thanks, Claire. This is a continuation of the Santa Maria story. Concerns across the country. David Grabowski, a professor of health care policy at Harvard Medical School, said Medicaid and Medicare reimbursements have affected nursing facilities looking to provide long-term care. I think the tension playing out at the nursing home in Cambridge is playing out across the country, Grabowski told the Chronicle. Nursing homes have also seen a change in long-term patients in recent years. People who in the past might have moved into a facility now have more options for receiving care at home, Grabowski said. Often people living in nursing homes have acute conditions that require more care from staff. Staffing is one of the main challenges for these facilities, Grabowski said. Higher staffing levels often lead to better out outcomes for patients, but outside Massachusetts, some facilities choose to understaff, leading to problems with the quality of care. The simplest solution, Grabowski said, is for states to start increasing Medicaid reimbursements. But with no evidence in either political party of moving toward this approach, Grabowski said another alternative is to look at ways to integrate Medicaid and Medicare payments. Many, many patients are eligible for both programs, and paying rates through a coordinated system could help address issues with reimbursements. Many nursing facilities that have closed served urban areas with more Medicaid patients, Grabowski said, adding that they often provided high-quality care. Do we need to treat these nursing homes differently? If we don't address reimbursements, I think we're destined to see this story repeat itself. Gilbert has started to hold information sessions for families to discuss the closure and the process of finding new facilities for patients. He is encouraging people to begin the process early to avoid problems in December. 
Some patients have resided at Sancta Maria for as long as 15 years. Several have developed friendships after living together for a long time. Gilbert said he would like to find a way to keep these residents together in a different facility. Gilbert sees the challenges leading Sancta Maria to close as evidence of broader concerns for the future of long-term care. What's going to happen if all these facilities close? What's going to happen to all these elderly people in the next generation, Gilbert asked. That's something, as a society, we should be thinking of. Over to you, Bob. Thanks, Max. Learn more about the special election ballot question. The League of Women Voters of Belmont is, is having a marijuana information session from 7 to 9 p.m. on Thursday, September 20th at the Chenery Middle School Community Room near the parking lot entrance to help educate voters before the special election on September 25th. On September 25th, polls open 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. for a special town election. A yes vote would prohibit cultivation, manufacturing, and independent testing labs in Belmont and limit the number of state-issued retail licenses available in Belmont to two right now, 20% of the number of current alcohol retail licenses. A no vote would allow all types of marijuana establishments in Belmont and would not limit the number of retail establishments. Retail stores, as well as cultivators, manufacturers, and testing labs could apply for a license from the state to operate in Belmont. Uh, what this ballot question does not do, it does not ban marijuana retail stores. Neither a yes nor a no vote would opt out Belmont for marijuana establishments. It restricts the type and number of licenses that would be available for issuance by the state. It does not circumvent zoning bylaws. The planning board is diligently drafting bylaws for adult use marijuana establishments to be voted on at town meeting later this fall. There is a planning board public hearing to discuss the current draft of the zoning bylaw for adult use recreational marijuana in Belmont on Tuesday, September 18th at 7 p.m. at the Homer Municipal Building Art Gallery, the third floor. It does not pertain to medical marijuana. That's an additional issue. Uh, in the 2016 November general election, question four passed allowing adult use recreational marijuana in Massachusetts. Different rules apply to a yes town, a majority of citizens in the town voting for, compared to a no town. Belmont is a yes town. Thus, Belmont is required to have a special election for any restriction on adult use marijuana. And now over to my colleague, Claire. Thank you, Bob. Special town election information. Get out and vote on September 25th. The town of Belmont will hold a special town election Tuesday, September 25. There will be only one question on the ballot, as shown below. Polls will be open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. at the town's eight voting precincts. Question one, 
Shall the town vote to amend the town's general bylaw by inserting into the title of Chapter 60, Article 1, after the word tobacco, a comma, and the word marijuana, and by adding a new section 60-107 as follows. A consistent, consistent with MGL 94G, all types of marijuana establishments except for marijuana retailers, both as defined in MGL 94, shall be prohibited within the town of Belmont, provided, however, that a registered marijuana dispensary shall not be deemed to be a marijuana establishment. B, consistent with MGL 94, the number of marijuana retailers in Belmont shall not exceed a number that is equal to 20% of the number of licenses issued within the town of Belmont for the retail sale of alcoholic beverages not to be drunk on the premises where sold. Summary by the Town Council. The new 60-107 of the town's general bylaw, as printed above, was approved by a special town meeting on May 2, 2018, but by state law, it does not go into effect unless it is also approved by the voters under this ballot question. If approved by the voters, Law 60-107 would prohibit the state's Cannabis Control Commission from licensing any kind of marijuana establishment in Belmont other than a retail store. Registered medical marijuana dispensaries would continue to be allowed under a separate statute. The types of marijuana establishments that would be prohibited because they could not be licensed by the state would include marijuana cultivators, marijuana product manufacturers, and marijuana testing facilities. The number of retail marijuana establishments would also be capped at 20% of the number of licenses issued for the retail sale of alcoholic beverages not to be drunk on the premises, also known as package stores, rounded up to the next whole number. Belmont is authorized to issue and has issued six such licenses, which means that the state could issue a maximum of two licenses for the retail sale of marijuana and marijuana products. Six times 20% is 1.2, which rounds up to two. That number would remain at two unless the, and until the town obtained authorization from the state to issue and did issue more than 10 package store licenses. The new bylaw would not guarantee that any marijuana retail stores would be located in Belmont, nor would it determine where they could be located. Those questions would be determined through the state's licensing process and through zoning bylaw provisions and other, quote, time, place, and manner restrictions that may be adopted and amended from time to time by the town. Now here's Max. Thanks, Claire. Meet the new Chenery Assistant Principal by Joanna Cates-Uvelis. Nicolette Foundas taught fifth grade Chenery Middle School for the past 10 years. Over the summer, she was promoted to the role of assistant principal at the Chenery. Her new role differs slightly from the upper and lower school assistant principal roles. 
Foundus is responsible for, quote, encore programming, unquote, focusing more on supporting the teachers and students when in art, physical education, technology, world languages, music, and health. I am supporting those students in their encore classes the same way as our school's other administrators, socially, emotionally, and academically. It has been extremely rewarding so far. I'm continuing to support students who I've taught in the past, and now I'm able to support even more who I wasn't fortunate enough to have taught, wrote Fondas in an email to the Citizen Herald. The Belmont Citizen Herald asked the new assistant principal at the Chenery Middle School some questions to help readers get to know her a little better. Here are the responses she sent via email. What are you looking forward to most about being the new assistant principal at Chenery Middle School? I am very excited and feel blessed to be continuing my work in Belmont in this new position. I've worked in Belmont for 10 years, and over the last couple years, I have worked very closely with the district initiatives of social-emotional learning and the district's vision committee as we prepare for the new Belmont High School. I'm excited that I am able to continue that meaningful work that I have been doing over the past couple years, and most importantly, supporting the students and staff of Chenery, who I care deeply about. What do you think your greatest challenges will be in this new role? This is a good question. I'm lucky as most new administrators begin their new positions in a new district, but since I'm remaining in Belmont where I've been for 10 years, I feel confident in the work that I'm doing. I know there will be hurdles and obstacles along the way, but I'm fortunate to know exactly who I can call for help and feel supported as I step into this new position. How do you think being a teacher at the school the past 10 years is going to benefit you in your new role? Since I'm, I'm freshly out of the classroom, I understand the teacher's perspectives and concerns. This will be helpful when making important decisions and advocating for things that may come up that can support the teachers of Chenery. Over to you, Bob. Thanks, Max. Modular classrooms ready for students by Joanna K. Zavallis. Students and parents returning to Burbank Elementary School on September 5th noticed several changes uh, to the campus. Four modular classrooms with bathroom facilities, a covered walkway with a ramp connected to the building, a new synthetic turf playing area, a wider newly paved entry and exit driveway, new sidewalks, a larger parking uh, lot, and new landscaping, upgraded wiring and fire safety systems, and new basketball hoops. Uh, just some of the improvements the school received over the summer, thanks to the approval of borrowing and appropriating $2.734 million for the project at a special town meeting last November. The new classrooms will be used to house the fourth grade students at the Burbank Basically, we're going from a three-classroom per grade school, K through four, to a four-classroom per grade. Uh, so now we'll have 20 classrooms here at the Burbank schools, said Dr. Tricia Clifford, principal of the Burbank Ele Elementary School. According to Superintendent John Phelan, the modulars will receive, will reduce class size to a more acceptable level for teaching and learning in kindergarten through fourth grade. He said there will be no more than 22 students in each kindergarten and first grade class and no more than 24 students in second through fourth grades. 
Enrollment has grown by about 101 students every year since 2011, and Phelan doesn't see the trend slowing down before 2021. And now on to Claire. Thank you, Bob. Samaritans to hold a suicide prevention 5K run and walk. The Samaritans Incorporated will hold its 20th annual suicide prevention 5K run and walk on September 29th at Adesani Park, 1255 Soldiers Field Road, Brighton. Belmont resident Carrie Howder will participate in the Samaritans 20th annual 5K run for suicide prevention for a very personal reason. Howder lost her father to suicide and has made it her personal mission to break the stigma that surrounds suicide and mental illness. This is her seventh year participating in the event. Nearly 2,000 runners, walkers, families, and team members will support Samaritan's mission to prevent suicide. Registration will begin at 8 a.m. for the 10 a.m. event, which includes a family fun festival for children, an appearance by Wally from the Red Sox, auction and raffles and massages. Register to participate or read about the inspiring teams involved in this year's event, many of whom will be running or walking in memory of loved ones lost to suicide. Our 20th annual 5K event will serve as a memorial for those who have died by suicide, as well as a celebration of their lives, said Steve Mongo, Executive Director. For the past 20 years, the event has been one filled with hope and promise as people of all ages and walks of life come together to make a difference. The Samaritans hope to reach their fundraising goal of $400,000 from the money raised from registration fees, donations, and corporate donor sponsorships. Now over to Max. Thank you, Claire. Tennis tournament keeps memory of a young boy alive by Joanna Cates of Ellis. Every year for the past seven years, Oakley Country Club tennis coach Keith Warner and Belmont business owner and Concord resident Ewa Marama organize a tennis tournament in memory of Marama's son, Nicholas. Nicholas loved playing tennis and was a student of Warner's. On April 30th, 2010, he passed away at the age of nine as a result of an injury from a tree limb which fell on him while he was playing with friends at a home on Shaw Road. This year's Nicholas Marama Tennis Open will take place on Saturday, September 29th, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Winbrook Elementary School Tennis Courts. All proceeds raised from the event will benefit the Children's Room in Arlington. The Children's Room helped Marama's younger daughter, Ella, who was seven when Nicholas passed away, by giving her the opportunity to meet with other children who had lost siblings. She was able to find comfort and safety by doing projects with them and talking, helping her realize there are others who felt the same way as her and she was not alone. Quote, when my Nick passed away, we faced the worst time of our lives. The pain was unbearable, even though we were surrounded by the love of our family and friends. It was children, children's room that brought us hope and showed us ways of survival even after we thought our hearts would never be able to go on. Through meetings with facilitators and other families and parents, Ella met with other children that lost siblings. It was truly a life-saving experience 
I'll be forever grateful to the children's room, said Ewa. Amy Chung, co-worker of Ewa, said her son Preston was best friends with Nicholas since kindergarten at Winbrook Elementary. They took tennis classes together. Since Nicholas was such a wonderful, loving child, we considered him as a part of our family. For him to be taken away from us so soon is so heartbreaking. So having this event helps us remember what a wonderful kid Nicholas was to us by having a tournament using his favorite sport, she said, adding the children's room is a worthy cause because it helped the Marama family deal with sudden tragic loss. Keith Warner was Nicholas's tennis coach. Back to you, Bob. Thanks, Max. 50-plus job seekers networking event to be held bi-weekly. The Beach Street Center will hold a regional networking event 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. on the first Tuesday of each month, starting on September the 18th at the Beach Street Center, 226 Beach Street in Belmont. This free program offers support training, education, and networking to people ages 50 and older who are seeking help with career direction and employment. The group facilitator will present a new topic each week, one-to-one speed coaching, speakers, workshops, and weekly job recruiters will be offered. Attendees will be taught how to develop a new skills, tools, and strategies to help in career transitions. Doors will open at 1 p.m. for early sign-in and casual networking. Participants can attend meetings in any regional location Group facilitator Mark Sensky is a, is a career management professional who specializes in coaching, training, and interview preparation. He lists his areas of expertise as assessment, branding, marketing, and social media networking. For information, please call 617-993-2983. Let me repeat that. That was 617-993-2983. Along with my colleagues Claire and Max, we thank you for listening to the Talking News and hope you've enjoyed the show. We will return next week for another edition of Local News Happenings Around Belmont.